Hello, and welcome to Brom Show. This is Brom, and we are going through the series Great Works. Now, this next author, whose book we're going to be looking at, is quite an interesting figure. And as we go through it, I can't help but think you might agree. So let me give you some of his background, and it might help illustrate or explain his work. He was nominated to the Supreme Court by President Reagan. He was rejected by the legislature because he dared give his actual views on subjects. So uh, ever since then, the great majority, and just about all of them, you can tell when they go before the Senate and have the hearing after their nomination, they just kind of, well, they refuse to give any flat-out answer. Well, this guy gave what he really thought, and because of that, he was rejected. Uh, his name is Robert Bork, and he writes a book entitled Slouching Towards Gomorrah, Modern Liberalism and American Decline. Now, Judge Bork takes interesting perspectives. He's, we get to the same place, but the way that he gets there is unique. It's not an idea that I would have ever perhaps had myself, but the way that he maneuvers through those ideas to get to the bottom is uh, fascinating to me. So let's look at the first quote. He says, Radical egalitarianism necessarily presses us towards collectivism because a powerful state is required to suppress the differences that freedom produces, that raises the sinister and seemingly paradoxical possibility that radical individualism is the handmaiden of collectivist tyranny. This individualism is quite apparent in our time, attacks the authority of family, church, and private association. The family is said to be oppressive, the fount of our miseries, it's denied that churches may legitimately insist upon what it regards as moral behavior in its, in its members. Private associations are routinely denied the autonomy to define their membership for themselves. The upshot is that these institutions, which stand between the state and the individual, are progressively weakened and their functions increasingly dictated or taken over by the state. The individual becomes less of a member of a powerful private institution and more a member of an unstructured mass that is vulnerable to the collectivist coercion of the state. Thus does radical individualism prepare the way for its opposite. So let's see if we can put this into layman's terms and break it down a little bit. And here's an easy illustration where this unfolds and it has unfolded in our culture. Let's say a woman wants access into a men's exclusive club. It's a men's club. It's only for men, but she is determined to get access. And no matter how hard she tries, they refuse to grant it. They just are not going to let women into this club. And it could be a college. It could be just a, an, some other institution. They refuse to admit women. And so what does this particular woman do? But she goes to the courts, and she fights in the courts, and eventually wins. And so we cheer for women's rights. We cheer for the rights that now women can finally come into the uh, golf club and hang out. 
and we think to ourselves, gender is finally no longer an issue. Now let's fast forward uh, 20 years. And your 10 or 12 year old daughter has gone into the bathroom and you are waiting outside for her safe return. And while you wait, you see a man, let's say in his 40s, he is a rugged looking man, he's got a beard, he's obviously a man, and he decides to walk into the lady's restroom where your daughter is. And you become agitated and aggravated and very upset. And so you go to management and you tell management, please, 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 my daughter's in there and he, she is in there with some 40-something-year-old pervert. Um, I don't know what his intentions are. Please, can you send a female, send somebody in there to save my daughter? And so eventually this man comes out of the ladies' room and he is addressed by management. To which he says to management, well, today I feel like a female. Today I feel like a lady. So I figured I would use the ladies' restroom. To which then the leadership, the management of this facility looks back at you and says, well, there you have it. Have a good day. And there is no uh, judgment. There is no arrest. There is no, that nothing happens. And how did we get here? We got here by unyielding individualism that did not give way to institutions, to private institutions, and instead went to the courts. And so at this point, private institutions are scared to make a stand because of the legal ramifications that they could see. Now, in case you're wondering, Robert Bork did not write this in the 2000s or the 210, the 2010s, right? He wrote this in 1996. He saw the handwriting on the wall. So let's look at another quote. He writes, A nation's moral life, of course, the foundation of its culture. A nation's moral life is, of course, the foundation of its culture. This is a scary idea because where we are now, we are no longer a moral people. America is great because America is moral. If they ever stop being moral, they'll stop being great. This has, well, I don't know how you can not have concern, true concern, especially if you have children and what their tomorrow America will look like. Let's go on to the next. This quote is quite interesting. He says, a person whose main difficulty is not crop failure, but video breakdown, has less need of the consolations or promises of religion. Holy mackerel, this guy's so insightful. Think about that. The farmer, let's say he lived during the Dust Bowl. You better believe he was praying for his crops to come in. But today, what are, what, what are they going to pray for? Lord, let this TikTok video please upload. There is quite a difference between the need in our minds to rely on God. And of course, the less need we feel to rely on God, the less we will rely on God, and the further in our minds he's pushed back so that he is no longer the prevailing thought or idea in the cultural conscience of the nation. So this means that as he's pushed further back, 
we all have less things in common. And this is going to bring us to our next quote. Let's look at that. He says, radical individualism, radical egalitarianism, omnipresent and omni-incompetent government, the politicalization of the culture, and the battle for advantages through politics shatter a society into fragments of isolated individuals and angry groups. This explains Antifa, Black Lives Matter, even some of the Trump supporters. This, though, let's be honest, right? We, we, we have to be honest about that. The vast majority of Trump supporters are not uh, the quote-unquote peaceful protesters that Antifa is. But we can see the fragments of uh, the, the fragmented culture that we're living in today. So this next quote reminds me of one of the things I personally fail to talk about often enough. If you've listened to my podcast for any length of time, you've heard me spout liberty, liberty, liberty incessantly, right? Freedom, give me my rights back. But there is one side of that that is overlooked because with liberty comes responsibility uh, because there are consequences for your actions. There has to be the two sides to that coin. It's the same coin, right? That coin is liberty. But on the other side of that coin is responsibility. And if you don't have responsibility, you can't possibly have liberty and vice versa. And he addresses that with this quote. He says, Burke, unlike the mill of on liberty, had a true understanding of the nature of men and balanced liberty with restraint and order, which are in truth, essential to the preservation of liberty. So basically what he's saying is you can't have liberty without morality. There has to be a combination. You can't have one without the other. Well, I let me change that. You can't have morality and not have liberty, but you cannot keep and preserve liberty without morality. So this, honestly, this is another book that I can just continue. I could do a whole nother podcast on it. I won't do that. I'm going to save you, but I encourage you. I've actually got the book. If you're one of our listeners and you would like that book, I would be happy to send it to you. Uh, I might have to find it though, <laughs> but I do have it. I encourage you, give it a read. Here's another quote. He says, Krauthammer wrote, it is not enough for the deviant to be normalized. The normal must be found to be deviant. This situation is thoroughly perverse. And we can see that clearly in the cultural push for heterosexual couples not to marry. However, they also push for homosexual couples to marry. Why is that? They are, they've switched it. If you happen to be a man in love with a woman or a woman in love with a man, don't worry about marriage. Just live together. But if you happen to be a, be a man in love with a man or a woman in love with a woman or a she or, or a they that's in love with a, and it or however that goes, uh, then you ought to go ahead and get married. He nailed it on the head. It's not enough for the deviant to be normalized. The normal must be found to be deviant. That's why we don't want heterosexuals getting married. But anybody and anything else can get married. A, a woman can marry a cat. And that's okay, but don't marry somebody of the opposite sex that you, that's a human being that you actually love. So I've got just about enough time for one more quote. He writes this. He says, The usual strategy 
for coping with the discomfort of knowing that others are more superior in some way is to try to reduce the inequalities by bringing the more fortunate down or by preventing him from being more fortunate. This is the strategy of envy. This explains taxing the rich. This explains the culture that we see among us where the 1% are villainized. We degrade them. We constantly talk down to them. And the crazy thing is most of them that are in the 1% or a good number of them will talk about each other the same way and how you, you know they've just robbed people blind and they feel so guilty, although they never generally willingly give more money to the government unless they can find a uh, tax loophole that will save them. Let me see if I can make this clear. I am not envious of Steve Jobs. Of course, not now, right? He's gone. <laughs> but I'm not envious of Bill Gates or Zuckerberg. Um, I'm not envious of their money. They earned every dollar. It was their thinking that brought this wealth to them. It was their ingenuity. That's an amazing thing. That's a great accomplishment. Now, let's be frank. I don't give a lick about their politics. I don't, I, as a matter of fact, I detest their political stances. But envying success is not the American culture, or it's not the American culture we were handed. It might be the American culture today, but it's not the American culture that we were handed. And it's not the one I want to hand to my kids and to the next generation. Instead, we ought to look up to those that have made successes of their lives and hold them up as great examples or their politics aside per se but look back at our kids and say look you too if you're willing to work hard if you're willing to think if you're willing to engage you too can be successful just when you get there don't become a political idiot and by the way what got these guys rich what got them there capitalism. And that's exactly what Bork is saying here. Tell you what, I've run out of time. We will talk to you later.